Rob Bell was once the pastor of a megachurch in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and was saluted by one newspaper as the next Billy Graham. Today, he's more likely to be found on stage at a stand-up comedy club in downtown LA than in a pulpit. I interviewed Rob Bell for this week's issue of the Church Times, and we post the full interview here, much of which didn't make it into the paper. Rob brings his Holy Shift tour to the UK and Ireland from the 2nd to the 14th of July. The tour is being organised by Greenbelt. For dates and to buy tickets, visit greenbelt.org.uk slash rob bell. Tickets are only available from the Greenbelt website in advance, not from the venues or on the night. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, try 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. When I interviewed you in April 2011, Love Wins was just being published. I mean, looking back, am I right in thinking that was something of a turning point for you in your life, the publication of that book and, and the reaction it caused? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I had given a series of sermons about the importance of women's equality early, early on, like in my early 30s. So 10 years before Love Wins. And there, I had experienced a tremendous pushback. There's a unique venom that religious people spew when they believe they're defending the Almighty. <laughs> Are you with me on that? <laughs> I, I should say, in a previous life, that became a normal part of life starting then. So Love Wins wasn't a new experience. It was more of the same, just amplified, might be the best way to put it. And I think obviously lots of people who had been listening to me for a decade were like, wait, this has all been what your work has been about. There's nothing new in this book. So there was also an absurdity to that period of, are you serious? Really? (laughs) What in the world? You know what I mean? Um, And then obviously there's nothing in that, like that Love Wins book, which, boy, that feels like a lifetime ago, that isn't just firmly within the historic Jesus tradition. So you're, it was sort of like, this? What? Um, what in the world? So that's how I would summarize all that. But I suppose you'd had a, a following among more conservative Christians in the U.S. I mean, isn't, I've just watched The Heretic, the documentary. Oh, yeah. And in that, Pete, Pete Rollins says that you put your finger on a doubt and a questioning that was in that conservative community but that wasn't able to be expressed i mean the doubt about eternal Mm. conscious torment in hell right and perhaps that explains the vociferousness of the reaction yeah something quite deeply psychological absolutely absolutely and how many people were were taught a a view of the universe that is absolutely horrific like if you actually take it seriously it will drive you to madness it's like you want to be set free and someone's standing there holding you the key but that would mean some doing some serious deconstruction which is not something everybody's up for oh my word the past few years have been i don't i don't even i mean should i use the word fun it's just been (laughs) absolutely amazing there's weekly sermons with the robcast and there's tours and i just wrote a play and i put out a novel and i have a residency at a local comedy club it's just i feel like i'm making more things and and it's more enjoyable and satisfying than ever it's just been incredible so just going back when we spoke and love winds came out you were pastor of this church and some would call it a mega church by size perhaps not in tone and content yes. but 
after Love Wins came out, you subsequently left and moved to LA. And um, was that connected to Love Wins, or did you were you seeking a new chapter? Not, not really. It was the the church was so loving and supportive, and it was the you have to keep going and you have to follow the work where it takes you. And at some level, I'm telling a story, and then at some point, you say, well, well, where do people tell stories? And if I was in one of the capitals of storytelling, would there would that do something new for the work? Um, would that do something new in me? And then there, and then uh, I had a TV show for a little bit. It's uh, yeah, the environment here in Los Angeles is absolutely. It's like coming. It's like being home. Was that your TV show with with Oprah? <laughs> yes. Which I just want to hear you say that. <laughs> Which she's well known here as well. I mean, how did that come about? Because that's in a completely different world to kind of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, yeah. And part of it is at some level, years and years ago, I discovered the sermon as an art form and I set out to reclaim the sermon somewhere between guerrilla theater and performance art. I mean, the sermon historically, if you read the Hebrew minor prophets, if you read the stories about Jesus, the sermon uh, has been hijacked in many ways in our culture. And my work, I mean, 25 years at some very simple level, I've been trying to reclaim the sermon for everybody, not for a group of religious people over here, but for everybody about what it means to be human. And so it's it's almost like you just keep following it where it's leading. Um, and so I worked in a church and then I started a church because it needed to have a different space that I was doing it in. Then I started touring and doing like clubs and theaters. And then you just keep going and, and then you end up like, well, what would this look like on television? Um, and I tried that. It's like you just keep trying different things. You know what I mean? And even this, the tour I'm, that I'm coming to your fine country here in a month or so, it's called the Holy Shift Tour because I'm sort of reclaiming the word holy. Can you in 2018 talk about the word holy for an hour and 45 minutes in such a way that takes people places they haven't been before. Do you know what I mean? It's all, at some ways, in some ways, it's like a giant experiment. Can you do this? I'm about to release a new project called Blood, Guts, and Fire, the Gospel According to Leviticus. Which was the first book you preached on in your church. Exactly. And um, so I've revisited it 20 years later. And of course, I'm reading it so differently. And I'm completely blown away with all of what I missed 20 years ago in Leviticus. Um, how much of Leviticus is about justice, about equality, about living with intention, about conflict resolution, about proper relationship to the earth, about, do you know what I mean? It's like, wait, what? So, yeah, in some ways it's like just you just keep getting questions and you follow them and they get you get answers and those answers create new questions. And like even today when we're done with this interview, I'll be recording. I'm doing this recording of, of the book me taking people through the book of Leviticus and I'll be, here you go. Here's Leviticus for 2018. <laughs> Is there something that you still really value about speaking to a live audience? Cause a lot of people with your profile, you know, they get, they get Skyped into conferences or they, you like going on tour. I know you were in a band when you were at college. Is there something you like about the immediacy and the thrill of touring? Being Skyped into a conference just hit me on the head with a hammer. Awful. No way. The live People in a room, oh, man, I love that more than ever. I mean, this Holy Shift Tour, I'll probably do 50 nights this year of that tour. And 
I, I couldn't love it more. I'm already working on the next tour. And I have a residency at a local comedy club here in Los Angeles called Largo. Actually, just before I talked to you, I was working on next Monday night, I have a show. And I'll do an hour and a half on Ecclesiastes chapter one as like a one-man show. And I couldn't love it more. Uh, and even that sense in the room of people being like, where is this? What is this? Where is, where are we going? Well, I, I'm learning something. It, it's like weird and kind of inspiring and it's totally ancient and yet of, you know what I mean? It's also about now. Oh, I love that. That's more, that's just the, that's the thing right there. <laughs> and at this comedy club, who, who, your audience is it? It's presumably people who may not darken the doors of churches. Oh. Yeah, I actually don't. I'm not ever in churches or what you'd be like overtly religious spaces. Um, um, it's just part of my job is to go into places and talk uh, about. I mean, I talk about I mean, like like I'll literally in a comedy club have a get a screen and put up sections from the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> And it somehow works. Do you know what I mean? Like that's my job is people just uh, realize, wait, was that a sermon? Did I just buy a ticket for a show and I just heard a sermon and I'm not only okay with it, it was kind of great to be there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's what uh, that's what I do. The whole thing is a temple. That's probably that drives what I do more than anything as opposed to trying to build a temple I come along and announce that the whole thing is a temple, the whole earth. So as opposed to trying to sort of build a church and get people into this building or this meeting, you're going out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go out and talk about the word holy in the word in the in 2018. <laughs> I, I often talk about it like bass notes, like there's uh, our culture feels in many ways. Western culture feels like more and more it's all treble and no bass. It's all of the moment, pressing concerns, what hit the internet 17 minutes ago. Um, and then there are these base notes. There are things that human beings have been talking about for thousands of years. And when somebody can tell you a story, they can quote a text, they can help you see that the thing that you are facing, that you're struggling with, that you're confronted by, oh yeah, people have been wrestling with that for thousands of years and hear some of the truth, some of the insights, some of the wisdom in the shared human experience. It's it's amazing how much we're we're craving this. Uh, and people are more especially as people sort of leave what you think of as conventional religion, um, they're but they're desperate for base notes. You talked to us about preaching being a performance art. Did you see Bishop Michael Curry's sermon at the Royal Wedding? Oh, you know what? I just saw a brief clip, but I was good. I wanted to see it. Uh, I, I haven't watched it, but people were just raving about it. He seems to be someone who exemplifies that preaching perhaps as a performance art. Absolutely. And what's so fascinating is this is as public pop culture, cultural moment as it gets, and you had a sermon I mean, that's that's the roots of the sermon. You know what I mean? Like, and even the did you agree or did you not agree? You were did you have the experience? Yes. Is such the better question? Um, and obviously, 
the power is when you hear something that you haven't thought of or even the shallow surface sort of did you agree or disagree, you got to hear something that made you think. Uh, it moved you in some way. What a gift that is, as opposed to the sermon as propaganda piece where you basically just hear everything that you already believe and nothing ever changes. Yes, and I suppose the posture of those listening to it is different if they're just there to pick holes and to right. have you affirm my theology that's different to more of an encounter that right. challenges them and, and disrupts right. them right um, exactly can you talk a bit more about the relationship between comedy and and what you do um you, 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 pete holmes talks in the <laughs> in the heretic film about how and he's referenced to love wins he says you were doing um, the type of honest thinking usually reserved for comedians thinking critically in a way that comedians are normally paid to think <laughs> i think that was in reference to when you talked about um the age of accountability in this theological idea and you sort of show oh, yeah. perhaps the absurdity of it right right so interesting that he because he and like we've toured together and we do a two-man show together it's almost like when we became friends he was doing stand-up but there was such an element he was going after big truths trying to work out the big questions and i've been doing the big questions but leaning into comedy and it's like when we became friends, we both realized that we were both leaning into the other person's work. Yeah, and especially like this new tour, people are like, wait, where did all of the straight up stand up comedy come from? <laughs> it's probably always, I mean, that's always been a dimension of what I do. Um, I'm obviously, I'm in an environment now where, where I'm surrounded by comedians. And I, th I, I think that the, the theological answer to your question is, I noticed when I started spending lots of time here in L.A. with comedians that there is sort of the polite boundaries of conversation. And when the conversation go crosses any of those boundaries, the pastor immediately pulls back because obviously we don't talk about that or we need to keep this environment proper and polite and it's exactly the moment where everybody cringes or stiffens up a little like, uh oh, I can't believe they just said that. That's when the comedian and I would say when the comedian is working redemptively, the comedian immediately comes to life. You know what I mean? Wait, why don't we talk about that? Why is everybody made uncomfortable by that? What line just got crossed? And it's like the comedian goes and finds that line and then marches right over it you know what i mean and then points it out and then goes farther and when a comedian is moving is working redemptively the comedian goes hey look we can go into all of these forbidden dark frightening places and we're fine look you're even laughing about it your own shadow your own darkness all of the things that you're most mortified are present within you. I'm going to talk about them, name them. I'm going to list them in excruciating detail, and you're going to bend over. You're going to be laughing so hard. You're going to be doubled over. You know what I mean? And seeing that, it's like, a, it's like a profound gift. It's like the release valve for the soul that like everybody can just relax. A lot of that has affected me. So it's much more than just a sort of joke to introduce a sermon or to get people's attention when they've wandered right. off. Exactly. This isn't how you get people 
to pay attention to the work. This is central to the work. Um, or you even think about like think about politics and how many settings, if someone starts talking, they're like a sort of coldness enters the room, like, uh oh, they're getting political. Whereas the the comedian charges in and is like, wait, this is how we arrange our common life together. This is about money and education and bound and geographical boundaries and refugees and relax. This is just what it means to be human. Like we've been trying to figure out how to arrange our common life together for thousands of years. You know what I mean? Like why are you, why are you at this moment at the dinner table tensing up when we're just getting to the actual truths here at the table? In Britain, they often say, don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. I don't know if it's the same right. in the US. And you're like, absolutely. And you think, wait, two of the topics that are most central to what it means to be human, we can't talk about because somebody might get offended. Well, then that person needs to be brought down a few to pegs. Stop being so offended so we can actually make some progress. <laughs> and I think that the comedian just goes after it. Oh, look at Uncle Phil. You know, you can't say that around him. Well, Uncle Phil needs to get a life. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uncle Phil needs to do some ego work here. <laughs> or you can't say this around the pastor because they have to be protected from this kind right. of thing. Right. And when you think, no, we need leaders who are in it with us, who can point out the absurdity. and can, You know, there's a rabbi, uh, Lawrence Kushner in Massachusetts, and he has this great line about how a synagogue hires a rabbi to speak to them of their own insanity <laughs> like we pay you to tell us where we're completely insane i love that perhaps not a church growth strategy or is it i don't know I, but I, I mean you think about the spiritual communities when there is somebody who's like what are you people something oh you it's like people eat it up like thank you somebody's telling the truth somebody's not just trying to keep their paycheck <laughs> Talking of politics, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I mean, since um, in the last few years, obviously a big event in America has been the election of Trump. Many white evangelicals appear to have voted for Trump. What, why do you think that was? Uh, you know, what happened to me is this was years ago. I did a series of sermons against the war in Iraq. And there were... No number of people who had serious issues with those sermons. But what was so interesting to me is I thought that like heaven, hell, God, Jesus, Bible, those were like the most, for religious people, the most sort of volatile issues. If somebody like poked holes and those sorts of things to how people understood that. But what was so interesting to me is I was like, oh, there's a religion in, in America, there is a religion way more sacred to people than anything involving God, Jesus, Bible, and that is America. That's actually the sacred religion. Do you know what I mean? Um, when you start talking about the military-industrial complex and, and in the National Football League, whether athletes can protest the singing of the national anthem, even with just a simple bending of the knee, um, that there's a thing in America, even the gun, the gun is more sacred 
um, it's the untouchable absolute that can't be questioned for a lot of people. So I think what happened when the president was elected is a number of people revealed that it was never about the grace, compassion, solidarity of nonviolence of the Jesus path. It was about protecting a particular 21st century free market capitalist vision for, for the world. And that thing had been masquerading as Jesus for a long time, and it, and it revealed its corrupt, stained soul. This was not about the way of Jesus. Stop it. Even the fact that, like in your question, white evangelicals, I mean, that word evangelical was a Roman military propaganda term that the Jesus movement co-opted, as you know. So how these people who this word was about resistance to empire, not the unflinching support um, for empire, um, this movement is just completely upside down. And one of the gifts of this presidency has been – that's all now out in the open. Um, it said morality. It said faith. It said trust in God. It used the word Jesus, but it wasn't serious. It was all a giant charade, and now lot way more people see it than saw it before, and that's important. Can I ask a little bit about the, the book you published last year, What is the Bible? You, you say in the film The Heretic, people either ignore the Bible or they read it through a lens of stilted literalism, which sucks the life out of it. And was this book about showing a different way to approach the Bible? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm more compelled with the Bible than ever. There's just sheer brilliance. But at a larger level, there's thousands of years of collected wisdom on how to be human. This absurd modern idea, well, what could we ever learn from something that's thousands of years old, as if we've arrived. <laughs> you know what I mean? As if we're somehow in some place of we've got it sorted out. Anytime I hear people slagging the Bible, I, I, I'm like, it's there's such arrogance. And I just, I think there's fundamentalism on both sides. Um, oftentimes the critiques of the Bible are primary school critiques. Um, they're brutal misreadings um, and and it's interesting the people who would often talk about evolution as the best way to explain things, which I'm fine with, then are not evolutionary in their Bible reading. They read all the verses as if they all happened at the exact same time instead of reading the Bible as as in many ways an evolutionary unfolding. There are earlier parts in the story and later parts in the story. And sometimes – the writers are doing very clever things, and they're interacting with things that came earlier. And it's much more sophisticated than this sort of, these people had slaves, what could they teach us? Well, if you disregard all history, um, you're left with nothing. And so there are lots of levels at which I wanted to introduce people to a reading of it that fills you with life and wonder and questions and challenges you and and obviously there are parts where you just go, that's primitive and barbaric. I want nothing to do with that. And you move on. Like the freedom to call it what it is. Is, is that difficult to do when you've been raised evangelical and been told that you sit under this book as the inspired, inerrant word? You know, all of it, when people say you can't be selective. 
when obviously they are selective because everyone is to some extent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. So, right. I mean, people say like, well, you know, we take it seriously. Come on. What are you, what are you talking about? Or just all those things. Yeah. Those, um, I don't know what, I can't think of how I was, I mean, the Bible was around when I was growing up. I just started, when I started giving sermons in my early twenties and actually studying it, I was like, wait a second. This is, like even the most like obvious things, like right away in the Bible, the Genesis poem is about the affirmation of creation and the importance of human care for the soil. So right away, one of the central ideas of the Bible is if you as human beings are in proper relationship with the soil, there's going to be devastating personal, economic, psychological, health, like your whole society will be out of whack. So what I kept discovering is issues that people would refer to as like progressive issues are not even progressive issues in the Bible. They're just like basic assumptions. <laughs> and and that was, I think for me, then I, I just quickly was like, oh, Absolutely. a lot of what passes for rhetoric about the Bible, it's just, it, it thinks that it's sort of emboldening and defending the Bible, but it's actually undercutting it. You talk about your faith evolving and evolution. I mean, in the church here, we sometimes have figures who've, who've gone on this journey towards, um, you know, their faith evolving, questioning things, but then they've gone perhaps beyond Christianity by their own admission. They've lost their faith or whatever. It seems to you, you're, when am I right in thinking you're really trying to go back to the roots of your faith? I love all, I mean, the word radical is um, an important word from the Latin radix, which means root. Like a radish is a root vegetable. Uh, that the root, there's something very radical and yet old. It's it's almost like the, the radical isn't the person who wandered off into the deep weeds. The radical is the person who went back to source. Uh, it's the tradition that wandered off. Uh, and this was, I mean, this was birthed, the Jesus movement was birthed as a, a counter to the empire, a subversive movement that was about Caring for each other. Sacrificial love is how the world is made better, not coercive military violence. We need that more than ever. So, and, and, and the deeper answer to your question, I find Jesus more personal and compelling and convicting and meaningful than ever. Go figure. <laughs> does tradition still play some role in how your faith, does it still inform and nourish your faith? You know, say the, the early church fathers or church history, reading the writings of people hundreds of years ago yeah i i think a, a tradition is in many ways it's it's grounding it's centering it, it, you're coming from a place and there are deep resources within the jesus tradition that open you up to in, welcome and embrace people from all these different backgrounds my experience of, of the resurrected christ is not a, a narrowing but an opening up like uh, if you if you have a firm center, then you don't need to spend much energy on border patrol. <laughs> yeah, you have friends from all these different backgrounds, and that's beautiful. You, you're no longer fighting or trying to get people onto your side. You're just celebrating all of it. I've heard you talk about how the modern world can cut you off from the depth of life. Can you just say a bit more about what you mean by that? Is that, is that to do with the technology that's always around us or the, the instant culture? I mean, let's just start with how many people hate their jobs. They have constructed a narrative in which they have to keep 
this job in order to pay bills. Um, but when you just start probing a bit, like what are these bills? Could you move into a smaller house? Could you work somewhere else? Could you save for a while and then make a change in this direction? You suddenly realize that people who have been convinced this is just how it is actually have lots of possibilities and options. And so I think at some level, let's just start with basic questions about, is this life everything it could be? Does your deepest self say, yes, this is it? Or is this it? (laughs) And I just more and more over the past few years, especially met people who uh, it was like a deep inner knowing was telling them this isn't it. And they just needed somebody to to reaffirm that. Well, if there's a voice in your head that never stops saying you've settled, you've probably settled. Um, so let's start let's start poking that and find out what else might be there. And I've, I'm shocked at how many people, not shocked anymore, how many people are doing something with the majority of their waking hours. And then you just start asking them a few questions and they immediately have some other thing. Where they're like, but I always wanted to do that. You know what I mean? And then you say, well, what about that? Well, we'd, we'd have to move. You know, people do move. This does happen. <laughs> I, I think in many ways, the modern world, it handed people these ways of understanding things that just don't work like they're supposed to. I've listened to a podcast that you did with your wife recently talking about people who in ministry develop a kind of martyr complex and say, you know, I really don't like this anymore, but um, I'm doing it for the greater good for the cause because I, and it's a kind of earning points with God. What's your advice for clergy pastors who face kind of burnout? First off, that's not very sustainable. And if it is, it's a miserable life. And then if you're a leader, your gift is joy. Like, what do you have? How can you lead us if you're miserable? And especially if in any sort of spiritual community, you're trying to witness to grace and peace and an overflowing life, um, then that's your job. (laughs) You know what I mean? Your job then is to be smoking what you're selling. (laughs) Uh, So let's start there. And... This idea of, well, look at all the things, all the things I'm sacrificing, all the ways that I'm suffering for the divine. First off, if you're telling us that, something's wrong. And go do something else. Uh, just go do something else. It's not really helping. And life is hard, and people are showing up to get guidance. And if all they're getting is, well, you just have to do this for what? The whole thing, you have to reframe it. As, as the gift that it is, then it becomes uh, a whole different experience. I was just wondering, you're, you're very high profile. You do these tours. You know, what, what kind of keeps you grounded? Do you ever, be, are you ever concerned about becoming a brand? Oh, that's, you know what? I don't, uh, well, I'll tell you what my answer would be. I packed my daughter's lunch this morning and we put it in her backpack and I drove her to school. <laughs> And then um, one of my boys just passed through this room where, where we're talking to go to class. So I got to remind him to call him and tell him about something about his car that I noticed this morning in the driveway. And then uh, maybe we'll go surfing and I'll record that Leviticus project and then I'll work on my next Largo show and then we'll make some dinner. Uh, there's a couple things I need to get at the grocery store. 
That's my answer. So the idea that there's something out there just doesn't have anything to do with everyday life. It's about being with my family and friends and hopefully doing good work that helps people. Boy, I haven't signed a book in months and months and months. It's probably been a year since I signed a book. And it sounds like you don't spend a lot of time in airport lounges and hotels. Absolutely not. And even like this tour, uh, I only do like like two cities, maybe three, and then I go right home. And like the UK, Ireland tour, my family comes with me. Otherwise, I don't leave them. Maybe a couple of nights here or there. Just all of life is organized around having a life. And then the work comes out of bumping into neighbors and going for a meal in the neighborhood and meeting somebody out in the ocean surfing. And that's how it works. So, yeah, whenever somebody asks about some, you know, profile or some thing that's out there, I'm always like, huh, it's like describing some country I've visited a long time ago. It's like, oh, that's interesting. And, and that whole kind of mega church culture one hears a lot about sometimes on Twitter and, and on the Internet. It, you do feel quite detached from that now. Yeah, I, yeah. Even when I was a pastor in a local church, that seemed like a strange freak show. So now it just seems even more like, huh, apparently that happened somewhere. It's just not a part of my life. I'm just thrilled with all the people I encounter who are waking up to the joy that's possible and who are rediscovering that the Jesus path is it does something to you and it does something to the world. You don't have to live with hopeless despair. You can actually live with intention and you can actually be shaped in profound ways. And that's endlessly interesting to me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.